Well, when you preach from any uh, kind of Old Testament narrative stories we've got here, it can, it can be quite difficult to determine the emphasis uh, or the teaching points that come through the story. Unlike when you go to a New Testament, um, especially the letters, the epistles, you get there and you get a number of instructions. It seems quite clear. This is what God wants. And you get a number of things uh, which he says. But the contrast here is that simply a story is told. And from that story we examine, well firstly, primarily the nature of God. Uh, for that is principally why God has revealed himself through his word to us, the Bible. But secondly, when approaching an Old Testament narrative, we've got to see how God, as recorded in these stories, interacts with his people. How he works for his people. And ultimately, how he saves his people. And in some books of the Bible... Um, That may not be explicit at all. For example, in in the story of Esther, it's a book in the Bible, um, many of you will know, it's quite famous because never is God mentioned at all in the whole book. Uh, But it is clear throughout that book that he, he is working in and through his people in extraordinary ways. And likewise here in Ruth chapter 2, how God works, what we are to learn of God here, may not be explicit But we can see various themes that emerge from this story uh, that point us, I think, to God, to his work and his character. For example, one of the the themes that's obviously quite prominent here is is work itself. Um, Simply because the setting of the chapter, as we've seen, is is a farming setting. I'm sure Nathan's quite used to this, uh, where he comes from, you know. Uh, But it's it's an arable setting, isn't it? So we see here the work of Ruth in the fields of the barley harvest. You see that in the last verse of chapter 1. That's the time of the year it was. We also see the work of Boaz managing his land and his workers as he gives them instructions. But we also see throughout that God at work. It may not be explicit, but at every point we see his, his providential, his sovereign, controlling hand, moulding history. To bring about what he has planned from the before the beginning of time. The extraordinary, the improbable, the unlikely, the, the stroke of luck. They all seem to occur, don't they, under the rule of God. So therefore, all the work we see explicitly is part of and, and, and points to a greater work. Of the providential hand of God. Nothing you see is outside of his realm of control. And though we may not believe that. When we look at the, perhaps the chaos of our own lives. And the world out there around us. When we read God's word. And when you spend time in God's word. You begin to realise and recognise in your own heart and mind. That actually. Yes. It dawns in our kind of reality doesn't it. That God is. Supreme and Lord and King and Sovereign over all things. Every detail. And though we are responsible and and in control to a degree because we are God's pinnacle of his creation. He alone is the one who is the ultimate creator. The ultimate one in control. So work is one theme of this chapter. But in that work, in all the actions 
uh, virtually, of all, uh, virtually all that are concerned, there's this underlying theme that I think is perhaps critical to everything in this chapter. And that is the theme of compassion. Of course, the turning point in the story so far, back in chapter 1, was initiated through the compassion of Ruth, willing to, to go with Naomi, her mother-in-law, uh, back to Bethlehem. You saw that in chapter 1. She decides, Ruth does, decides to leave what was her homeland in Moab, where safety would, would have been found for her as a widow at this point. She turns her back on that and goes with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. She puts herself in an alien culture. She's in a terrible social predicament because she is a widow at this stage. She makes herself vulnerable. She is childless, so has no one to provide for her in a hostile land. It is a great act of compassion that she shows toward her uh, mother-in-law. But in compassion, she arrives with Naomi in Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1. And that is the setting of which we take up kind of this second chapter, chapter 2, and the story today. It's a beautiful story. But what do you see in this story? Why is it here in the Bible's that you hold today. Oh, we've got examples of work, but even that work of Ruth and others is an expression, I think, of compassion. And perhaps critically, we'll see in this story that is only the compassion of another. I hope you're getting a glimpse of this. It is only the compassion of another that can bring us from a situation of destitution and save us and bring us into life, abundant life in that way. It is only the compassion of another that saves us. It is not our work. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine the compassion of the character of the story. Firstly, the compassion of Ruth. I put it down, it kind of concentrates itself in verses 1 to 3, but it's smattered throughout, throughout the chapter, and we'll, we'll go through that in, in just a moment. But read with me again, if you can, from verse, verse 1. Have a cast your eyes down on that. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, so prominent in, this, in, the, in the culture, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out... She found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we're going to examine now the compassion of Ruth. Firstly, let's note that she takes initiative, doesn't she? Uh, they need food. They've come from Moab into Bethlehem. And though she's a foreigner, very at risk in Bethlehem, in compassion... She gets on with it, doesn't she? Looking after her mother-in-law. There's no delegation of a duty. We see she is the one who goes out into the field. She does the labouring herself. It is for Naomi, her mother-in-law, an act of compassion. And Ruth is described, look at that, it's, it's a wonderful description in verse 6. The foreman said, she's a Moabitess, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter to protect her from the midday sun. Just think about the sense in which um, the foreman there describes Ruth 
as a Moabitess. I suppose it's the way that an Everton supporter uh, speaks of a Liverpool supporter, and vice versa, I'm sure. Or how a northerner, I speak as part northerner, speaks of a southerner and vice versa, I'm sure. Or how the French speak of the English, and I think probably vice versa as well. It's not necessarily a racist mark, of which she said she's a Moabitess, but it is definitely derogatory. It's demeaning. The way in which it's, it's written in the original. She's a foreigner. But note, she is a hard worker. And later Boaz confirms this hard work as a compassion of Ruth. Look at verse 11 if you can. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland, Moab, and came to live with, your, with a people you did not know before. Isn't that wonderful? Ruth by now has, if you like, a, a reputation uh, for being compassionate, worked out through hard labour in the fields for her mother-in-law Naomi. It's a great reputation, isn't it? It goes before her, if you like. Verse 17, go on. So Ruth gleaned in the field into evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered. And it mounted to about an, a measure then she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law uh, saw how much she had gathered. Again, note here how long Ruth works. We see it in verse 17, it's until evening. Now, I guess many of you in the city, as the financial year comes to its end, you'll be putting in some seriously long hours as the, uh, the next few months. Uh, I guess you can empathise somewhat with the, the schedule of Naomi. She's uh, you know, working a whole day, just a little bit of shelter it, it, from the midday sun. But I, I just want to add to that that this is really strenuous work. This is not you guys sitting in the room with your Excel spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. This is serious hard graft as an act of compassion. It's a kindness towards her mother or she is providing for her. I guess as Christians we shouldn't be surprised when we see such compassion around us in the world, in our workplaces perhaps, amongst friends and family. Now those acts of compassion may not be you know, lots and lots of acts of compassion. Most firms and companies you work for aren't that keen in sharing the wealth these days. But charitable actions, kindness, compassion of many around us. It raises millions of pounds for various things. Yeah, we have comic relief, we have children in need, all those kind of things. Many people have compassion and they work and give so much. But the sad thing is they never recognise in and of themselves that their compassionate actions are simply a reflection of the God who's created them in his image. And as Christians, we should want to work alongside those acts of compassion in our society and acknowledge and support all those kind of works. But at the same time, we must recognise that we show compassion. And as we do, we do so because we are made in the image of God. And therefore, we are simply expressing his nature as the ultimate compassionate one. And that practically that means as both a church and individually, we should feel compelled not to isolate ourselves in purely kind of proclaiming the gospel ministry. But rather we should also be um, involved in ministries of kindness and of compassion, of mercy, whether that is of secular or Christian origin. 
See, we should be the ones handing out the meals to the homeless and uh, sending out packages to all around the world to support people in, in their need. We should be at the forefront of AIDS relief and, and the, med- the medical care for those people. But it is the gospel, that ultimate message of compassion, that should always be our priority. All actions of compassion in this world are, are wonderful reminders, if you like. Little glimmers of the ultimate uh, compassion that God has shown us in sending us his son, the Lord Jesus. So our acts of, acts of compassion in the world around us, individually and corporately, should never obscure the great ultimate act of compassion. The gift of Jesus Christ and his gospel that we should proclaim. But you see, in exposing the very character of God in those compassionate actions, that gospel message of ultimate compassion is so much easier to proclaim. Remember, through, uh, remember though, in this story of Ruth, it is not just God's people, Israelites, who show compassion, but it is Ruth, as we see here, a Moabitess, someone alien, who show compassion. So we should acknowledge and give thanks for the many in our society who do show compassion to the needy. And we must join with them where appropriate. But note our priority. Our priority is to demonstrate God's compassion, the ultimate compassion, in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus. So we've seen the compassion of Ruth. Let's move on to the compassion of Boaz, if we can. And our second point, second like character that we're looking at. Who is he? We see that from verse 1, just cast your eyes down there. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, that from the clan of Elimelech, the, the, the wider family of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now I guess we are told this, um, I suppose only to appreciate the man, the, the compassion of this man, Boaz. It, it just makes what we hear that little bit more personal. We, we're told his name. Look at verse 4 though. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem um, and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. We get a glimmer of what this man is like, Boaz, what he's like. I'd like you to try that when you get to work tomorrow morning, perhaps with your team that you manage. The Lord be with you. See what they say back. (laughs) I doubt it is the refrain that you hear here, which actually comes from Psalm 129. Um, He doesn't have to do this, Boaz, does he? But he does. And he's a good example to us of how we ought to treat uh, those we work with. Perhaps our neighbours, our friends, our our family. The Lord be with you. Maybe not try that, but you get the idea. Now, it's it's interesting always to ask yourself is, how do you relate to, how do you speak to the person who empties the bin in your office? Because that's usually kind of Quite low down, isn't it, in a sense, in our, in our minds. Well, look at the example of Boaz and how he treats his fellow workers, those under him. Let's go on, look at verse 12. Again, more of an idea, paint the picture of Boaz. He, he prays, um, especially speaks and then later prays. He shows his compassion to Ruth in the way he speaks. Let's read that section just once more, verse, verse 8 through, uh, through to verse 9. I, I don't normally say this, but I want you to kind of feel the compassion of the way he speaks to her. It's very interesting. So Boaz said to Ruth, verse 8, My daughter, yeah, listen to me. 
Don't go into uh, and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. It's lovely, isn't it? Ruth probably was actually in danger uh, in, in such fields. Historians tell us. Uh, the, the people who do with the reaping of the, of the, the barley harvest were, were pretty rough kind of characters. As a Moabitess, she would have dressed differently. It would have been obvious who she was. She would have, historians would tell us, that she would have faced certainly bullying and probably um, some abuse. But Boaz shows her great compassion, doesn't he? And you get an idea in verse 10, if you cast your eyes down, of, of how that made uh, Ruth feel. That compassion that Boaz uh, demonstrated. How low she felt as a result. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. It's, you know, it's, it seems so undeserved. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever found such favour with someone. Uh, in such an unwarranted way. I remember going on a honeymoon. I just about remember that still. And uh, with my wife, surprisingly. <laughs> it's not something you should pause after that, is it really? <laughs> we were in Jersey. Okay, it's better. Um, and um, with a, a family friend, uh, we, we were over there. And um, they said on the last night of your time with us in Jersey, and they, they said, we, we'd love to pay for you to go out to uh, a restaurant and uh, we were quite overwhelmed by this, but we sort of said, yeah, that, that would be really lovely. Um, we really appreciate that. And we turned up at this restaurant, and we looked down at the menu. And it suddenly dawned on Sarah and I that we will never, ever eat at a restaurant like this ever again in our lives. We will never... We looked at the house one, I remember, and thinking, I could buy a house with that. <laughs> never mind a bottle of wine. I mean, it was utterly ridiculous. It was extraordinary. It was extortionate. We had the most amazing meal. We didn't deserve it. We never asked for it. But with immense love and compassion, we were treated to something that we would, we would never ever be able to afford again. And we haven't. What we see here in Boaz is, is just an unwarranted, it's an undeserved kindness. We can imagine nothing good, nothing happy had happened to Ruth since chapter 1, verse 4, 5, where her husband had died. But here we see Boaz, this very wealthy, we assume, landowner, showed huge compassion to her. And he even prays for Ruth in verse 12. The brilliant thing about this, he doesn't even know as he prays that he would be the answer to the very prayer he's praying. Look at verse 15. This just blows your mind. As she got up to glean, um, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, where the most, you know, the, most of the grain would be, don't embarrass her, don't, don't infringe on her. Such warmth there, isn't there? Such protection. Unwarranted. It's, a, it's simply an expression of God's own protection for, for her as well. So we, of course, should follow this example. We should notice the vulnerable, if you like. 
around us. Be generous to those that we can be. Initiate compassion in our workplaces, with our friends, with our family. Don't patronise. Don't embarrass. Boaz could have done all of that, but he didn't. He chose to show compassion and protected her, giving her unwarranted favour. In a sense, we should all be asking, I suppose I put this in a little kind of phrase, as Boaz is, who is in my field? Who can I show compassion to today? So we see the compassion of Boaz. Linked with that is, or second, um, second is part of that, the compassion of Israel. I hope that pops up here. See, Boaz individually shows compassion, but corporately the nation of Israel, of which he was part, was compassionate by its nature and also by its law. So in verse 2, you see Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. You see, the law in Israel that God had uh, determined made provision for people like Ruth. If you want to note this down and have a look at it later, Leviticus, which is the fourth, third book of the Bible. um, Yes, um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse uh, 9 and 10 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Or, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. So as you go through with your, your scythe, you, know, you pick up and you make bundles and sheaves. But if you don't pick it up at all, just leave it. Leave it down there. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. So you take the nice bit, but if some fall, leave it. Leave them for the poor and the alien, Leviticus says. And he declares it, I am the Lord your God. Do it, if you like. These laws made provision, you see, for the poor. As the edge of the field was left for gleaners to pick up the grain, you know, I, I suppose I kind of imagine, I know a taxation works in our country in this way a little bit, but uh, can you imagine, like, outside the trading houses of London, people left little briefcases of money for the, you know, the poor and the alien to pick up? I don't think it's going to work. But um, John and I were talking about this at lunch and just saying, the great thing about this is it, it involves the people to work. And I think that's an important point we can pick up later, perhaps if we want some questions. But the provision of the state was also personal. And you note that, uh, look at verse 3. It's starting to get known there. Verse 3, so she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, don't you love that phrase? She found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. See, Ruth had found herself found herself, inverted commas, in the field of a kinsman. That is the, one of the clan of her dead father-in-law. It's a brilliant language, isn't it? Find, found herself there, very much under the control of God. But the kinsman, you see, under the provision of the law in Israel, had responsibilities for destitute family members. Which is why Naomi was so happy when you get to verse 20. Look at that. The Lord bless him, speaking of Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living, but also to the dead, to the family that has gone. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, close family, who redeems, a kinsman redeemed, who buys us back into, from destitution to, to, if you like, new life. See, the law meant that family members must be responsible for restoring family property or welfare. 
Hence why they were a redeemer. If you want to see that principle in the law, it's in Leviticus chapter 25. You can look at that later. Now, of course, we're not to adopt every single law within the old covenant. Um, even though some parts of the Brethren Church, which I grew up in, still apply this kinsman-redeemer um, uh, principle. So we have a family uh, friend um, whose husband died, and um, the, the husband, uh, husband's brother then married the widow. Um, and that uh, still takes place in a number of uh, churches uh, around this country and around the world. It's the kinsman-redeemer principle. Now, these laws, though, are not to be applied directly, I don't think. I don't think we need to, if you like, follow that, that old covenant law directly. But the principle of compassion, of love, should be at the heart of all of our systems in work, in our society, but supremely demonstrated in the church. Uh, we know that we'll never... Um, have perfection in this world, but things can get better. So we must pray that such provision, such kindness, such compassion is demonstrated in and through us, the church, but also out into the world, in society, in politics, uh, and so on. And we must pray for that and demonstrate it. And thank God and support those who are doing good work in the, in the world of politics and elsewhere. So the compassion of Israel. Thirdly then, the compassion of God that one there. You see, behind all of these demonstrations of compassion, whether Boaz um, or Ruth, is God's compassion in, in whom they all originate. It's no shock that Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz. Also, she probably didn't know about the provisions of the law of Israel. But God brought her, didn't he, to that place and to that society with those laws. And Boaz summarises it brilliantly, doesn't he, in verse 12. Cast your eyes down to that. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. And he is doing that as he's saying that. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I suppose we need to come to an end soon, but have you considered God's compassion for you today? Because he loves us so much, doesn't he? And he provides for us in so many amazing ways. Now, as we see here, the provision is material. And we know God's kindness to us in that way, so many ways, don't we? We are so well provided for in the lives that we lead. We need to be thankful for that. But his kindness and compassion to us in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is unsurpassed, isn't it? And it is in him we take refuge. And we can be sheltered by the hope we have through our faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever we face in this life, um, whether that's bereavement, illness, despair, loneliness, some besetting sin that we just can't struggle off, that we struggle to, whatever our trouble it is God's wings of refuge, if you like, that will protect us ultimately. See, our protection, uh, we speak of here, it's material, but our protection in Christ is eternal and spiritual. So yes, Christians will die tomorrow of starvation in Africa. And Christians will continue to be burnt alive in Syria as they are right now. 
But you see, even in their pain and sorrow, they know the reality, that eternal and spiritual reality that they can take refuge under the wings, the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The martyrs who will die today standing firm with Christ, looking down the barrel of a gun. It is the protection of God in securing our salvation. When he sent his son to die on that cross, to take the punishment that our rebellion against God deserves. That is, if you like, as Boaz describes, as the wing of God. We take refuge under that great eternal work of Christ. Like a father protects his children in his arms, so our Heavenly Father stretches out those, if you like, wings of compassionate love in which we need to take refuge. It's a wonderful image. Do not let today pass, if you like, without reminding yourself of really how immense God's love is for each one of us. You know how big it is? Well, look at Christ on the cross and take refuge in him and in him alone. So how do we apply all of this to us? Well, I guess on, on a pri- uh, first level, we need to, as Christians, show great compassion. We're never going to be pe- um, perfect as Christians and as God's church. Just look at history. Yes, of course, we've got wonderful examples like Wilberforce and the, the abolition of slavery. Great Christian man and led that compassionate work. But sadly, it was Christians in America who basically would not support the abolition of slavery for kind of 30 or 40 years after that and had a terrible record with regard to that. The Crusades, another terrible example. But we see we follow the one who had perfect compassion. And Paul in his letter to the church in Colossae exhorts all of us to clothe ourselves in that compassion. Exemplified in Christ. Colossians 3 verse 12. And both to those in the church and to those in the world around us How are we showing compassion to them? To put in the language of this chapter, who is in your field? And what are you doing about them? How can you be a Boaz this week? And how can you be more Christ-like, clothed in his compassion? How can we take the initiative like Boaz in caring for each other and for those in our office and our neighbours and our friends? Maybe you can get involved in all sorts of work, of, of helping up in you know, homeless work, or whatever it may be. We're going to try and launch a few things around here in Ellsfield soon. I'll tell you more about that in a few weeks. There's so much to be done. And given Christ's compassion for us all, let us clothe ourselves in that and take the initiative, both personally and corporately. How we use our money, how we use our time, merciful and compassionate ministries will, if you like, adorn Christ to this world. Making a saving gospel all the more attractive. As a church we are committed to such compassionate work. And we support many ministries in doing that. And long may that continue. But most importantly like Ruth with the encouragement of Naomi. Take initiative. Do something. Whether it's in your office. Demonstrate compassion to those around you. Or to your neighbours. To your friends. Get stuck in. There's much to be done. But never forget. Never forget. For all the compassion that we might show to the world around us in those very important, practical and beneficial ways that have been modelled by Ruth and Boaz and ultimately Christ, there can be no replacement for the most compassionate act of all, the compassion of Christ as he hung on a cross 
for our sin in our place. See, Naomi and Ruth, they faced starvation as they went back to Bethlehem, didn't they? But that is a very, very small thing in comparison to falling under the judgment of God. Of course we should feed the hungry, but what is our priority? Satisfying the pangs of stomach hunger, well that would just last a moment. Satisfying the spiritual poverty of the world around us before God, through the forgiveness of sins known on the cross, that lasts an eternity. The saving gospel must be our priority. So how did Naomi respond to God's compassion through Boaz and Ruth? I'm just, Naomi's response is brilliant. We've got one minute to finish and that's, that's me done there. Let's look at the, the response of Naomi. She prayed clearly. She recognised God's provision of providing this kinsman redeemer. We know who ours is. And we're going to sing about him in just a moment in our last song. You may want to cast your words down, but I guess many of you will know it. When I survey the wondrous cross, and as we look to that last verse, I think there's a good summary there. When we look at our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will bring us from a destitute to eternal glory, we've got to look and say, love so amazing, so divine. What does he demand? My soul, my life, my all. You see, Naomi knew God's love so amazing, so divine. She knew his compassion in utterly extraordinary and unexpected ways. But when Christ died on that cross, in our place, to take that punishment that our rebellion against God deserves. How extraordinary. How unexpected. How undeserving. It is love so amazing. And so divine. And what should our response be to our kinsman redeemer? My soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. When Ruth says, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Lord, we echo that in our hearts. That if we are those who have trusted in your cross and we are Christians, we recognise that we've... Why have we found such favour in your eyes that you notice us? We are so undeserving. We do not deserve anything from you, but you in your compassion... Your love and your kindness have given us your son, the Lord Jesus. That is love. So amazing. So divine. And what can we give in response? Nothing that would save us. But a life, we pray, that will be more and more pleasing to you. You demand our souls, our lives, our all. May that be the case this week. As we try and demonstrate the compassion that you've shown us in Christ to the world around us. Amen.